Quiz. Did I forget to tell you there's going to be a quiz today? Just one question. One question on this on the quiz. What was the what was the final point of last week's sermon? Anybody remember? <laughs> Zach says no, I wasn't here. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. You get a smiley face by your name. All right. Recommit to the Great Commission. And uh, this sermon is a follow-up on the idea of our need to recommit to the Great Commission. What what was the primary theme of the the Scripture stories that Gail read today? Lost. That had to do with things that were lost. And they were also... And after they were found, there was... They had a party, didn't they? Yeah. Have you ever... Um, well, first of all, let's talk about how that relates to who we are. Did you know that one of the, the primary missions of the church is to reach out to lost people? What do we mean by lost people? We don't mean... We don't necessarily mean that, you know, they can't find their house where they live or, you know, where's the church or I got up in the, you know, I was up in the wilderness and got off the trail and boy, I hope somebody. But in a sense that those physical things apply to spiritual, don't they? Because there are people who are lost spiritually. They're wandering. Um, it's like in a wilderness. And God wants them to be found. God wants lost people to be found. In one of the, the, one of the, the first mission statement of our church, and it's there on the front of your bulletin. And I'm going to, uh, w- that's the abbreviated version, but it says, reach out with the good news of the gospel and loving service to others. Folks, that is about reaching people for Jesus Christ who don't know him. That's what the good news of the gospel is, is all about. So, in thinking about the, the scripture that was read today, have you ever lost something that was valuable or meaningful to you and then found it again? <laughs> your mind? Is that... <laughs> oh, your glasses. Oh, you're pointing to your glasses. I'm sorry. Well, as long <laughs> as long as you find both again. But we've probably all experienced something like that that's been lost maybe for a long time. We had a daughter who left a purse in a, a place of business in Nampa when she was at school in, at NNU. And um, she, she approached this business and you know, they didn't know where it was. She was back in town a couple years later and there was her purse in the counter, you know, with the glass counter at the front. I mean, you know, she'd replaced everything by this time, but still it was like, yes. And we've all had an experience like that. And there are some things, you know, um, they're more important. They're more meaningful if we lose than others, like a wedding ring or your keys. Okay, things like that. I want to share a story with you. One fine day in 1941, Violet Bailey and her fiancé Samuel Booth were strolling through the English countryside, deeply in love and, in love and engaged to be married. A diamond ring sparkled on Violet's finger, her most treasured possession. Their romantic bliss suddenly ended 
One of them said something that hurt the other. An argument ensued, then escalated. At its worst point, Violet became so angry, she pulled that diamond engagement ring from her finger, drew back her arm, and hurled the treasured possession with all her might into the field. Boy, that was the end of that relationship, huh? Well, the ring sailed through the air, fell to the ground, and nestled under the grass in such a way that it was impossible to see. Here's the good news. Violet and Samuel kissed and made up. They walked and walked through that field hunting for the lost ring, but they never found it. They were married two months later. They had a child and eventually a grandson. Part of their family lore was the story of the lost engagement ring. Imagine the times uh, of regret, the times of sorrow that accompanied every anniversary, every remembrance of the ring that was lost. Violet and Samuel grew old together. In 1993, Samuel died. Fifteen years later, excuse me, fifteen years passed, but the ring was not forgotten. One day, Violet's grandson got a great idea. Perhaps he could find grandmother's ring with a metal detector. He bought one and went to the field where Violet had hurled her treasured possession 67 years earlier. He turned on his metal detector and began to crisscross that field, waving the detector over the grass. After two hours of searching, he found what he was looking for. Later, filled with joy and pride, he placed the diamond ring into the hand of his astonished grandmother, Violet. The treasured possession had come home. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the emotion in that family to see that treasured possession return? And folks, that doesn't even begin to speak to the heart of God for lost people. How dear, how precious we are to Him. In the story today, or in the stories, the parables that Gail read, we find the Pharisees a little disgruntled. Um, see, they were willing to condemn anyone who didn't meet their standards of what a follower of God should, should look like, even though they didn't live up to those standards themselves. See, uh, they were condemning the fact that Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And the tax collectors paid the taxes to the Roman Empire for their town or village um, in advance, and then were free to collect whatever amount they wanted from the people there. And most of them opted, opted to add a hefty profit on top of that. So the Jews hated the tax collectors for two reasons. One, they were working for the hated Romans. Two, they were actually stealing money from their fellow Jews in addition to collecting the taxes owed. Tax collectors, in fact, were so hated that they were forbidden to enter the temple. A Jew couldn't enter the te- a Jew who couldn't enter the temple couldn't provide the required sacrifices and offerings, and no priest would atone for their sins. So, can you imagine the burden that they lived under? You're you're rejected by the society you live in and essentially you're rejected by God because you can't approach Him. 
Other sinners were also barred, likewise for lepers and people with any kind of physical deformity. So to the, to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, it was scandalous that Jesus would, would associate himself with such people. And I wonder sometimes if there isn't a, a, a bit of that attitude among some in the church today. And I'm not, just, I'm not speaking specifically about us, but the church in general. Um, are there people who might see association with or ministry to some members of our society as scandalous? Sex offenders? Homosexuals? Prostitutes? Illegal immigrants? What are you doing hanging out with them? And their problem with Jesus, and they said this, was this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Greek word for welcomes here literally means to receive as a friend. And that was Jesus' attitude toward those who were lost in sin, to befriend them and love them to God. And it was vastly different from the view that the Pharisees had of the people. And also... I mean, it was not only the fact that he welcomed them, but he ate with them. That was almost a step worse. Because to, in, the, in that culture, for the Israelites, to eat with someone was almost like a spiritual, a covenantal experience. Something, it was something that created a, a, a relationship, a strong bond of fellowship with those people that you were eating with. That's why the... The Pharisees were so particular about who they ate with. They would never create, enter into covenant, enter into spiritual bond with the same people that they prohibited from entering the temple. Yet these were precisely the lost people Jesus came to reach. And so these parables that we, we, we heard read today Reveal the heart of God toward lost people. It also reveals the fact that each of us has a choice of the attitude that we take toward spiritually needy people. We can share God's heart for the lost or the heart of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Which, which would mean to say that there are some people that we just... We won't bother with them. So the lost sheep and the lost coin share a common theme. Something is lost and needs to be found. So to fulfill the Great Commission, we must share God's heart for the lost. And to do that, first of all, we must share God's passion. God's passion for, for lost humanity was so great that he did the unthinkable. He sent Jesus, his only son. 
You know, that, that goes back a little bit to, remember, I just said the tax collectors and sinners, those that were kind of lumped into that category, could not enter the temple to offer sacrifices to atone for their sin. And even those who could, it was this repeated, repeated, repeated experience and nothing was ever dealt with in a final way. And now what we have is a God who loves us so much that He was willing His Son to send His Son to pay the, the price for our sin that we could never pay ourselves through repeated sacrifices or through no sacrifice at all because we couldn't even go to the place of sacrifice. And folks, in order to share God's passion for the lost, we have to have compassion. Clear back in the Old Testament, in Exodus 3, verse, chapter 3, verse 7, it says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. God had compassion on what he saw was happening to them. And then we move up to the New Testament. Same God, but now He's put on the flesh of humanity. He's walking the earth with us. It's Jesus. And he said, it, this is speaking of Jesus. Matthew 9.36 When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do we have compassion? Do we see people as Jesus does? Lost, harassed, helpless, hopeless, without purpose and meaning in this life. You know, for a lot of people, it's some of those old ads you saw on TV about, well, you only go around once, you've got to get all the gusts you can get, because this is it, folks. When this life's over, this is it. Was it, uh, did you ever study Omar Khayyam in one of those uh, poke, uh Classes about ancient poetry, poetry, and this is reflected even in Ecclesiastes. The idea of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And for a lot of people in our world, that is their attitude. This is it. You got to get. I mean, just live it up, have fun, because once this life's over, that's it. God says that's not the case. There's an eternity for all of us. And and. Where we spend that eternity is predicated upon who, it, whether we choose Jesus or not. And we don't like to talk about this, but the Bible certainly does. There's a hell out there. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's the way to heaven. If you reject that way, the alternative is, and listen, and I've talked about this. How could God send anybody to hell? God sends nobody there. God did not design hell for us. God designed hell for Satan and his demons. But listen, there's no neutral territory with God. There is no Switzerland in World War II. Remember that? Switzerland was a neutral country. There is no Switzerland. You're, Jesus said, you're for me or you're against me. So in other words, if you haven't chosen for Christ, you have automatically chosen for Satan. And 
God has determined that Satan will spend, and his demons will spend eternity in hell, which eventually will be thrown in the lake of fire, and that's what we've chosen. And guess what? God does not want anybody to choose that. The scripture says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here's the gigantic risk that God took. He gave us the ability to choose. Self-will. Can you imagine God doing that? But listen, he didn't want us to love him because we were robots programmed automatically to do that with no option. God wanted us to love him because we choose to love him. That's real love. So do we have compassion? Do we see people as Jesus does? Or do we look at lost people sometimes and say, well, it's their own fault? Or when will they ever learn? Or they just need to clean up their act. By the way, that clean up your act thing, that's one of the lies that Satan perpetrates in people's hearts and minds. I had a neighbor that we, I invited over and over again, and he said, you know what, as soon as I get my life together, I'll come to church. <laughs> you got it backwards. Come to church, meet Jesus, and he'll help you get your life together. A businessman and his wife were busy to the point of exhaustion. They were committed to each other, their family, their church, their work, their friends. Sound familiar? Needing a break, they escaped for a few days of relaxation to an oceanfront hotel. One day, a violent, one night, a violent storm lashed the beach and sent massive breakers thundering against the shore. The man lay, lay in bed listening and thinking about his own stormy life and of never-ending demands and pressures. The wind finally died down, and shortly before daybreak, the man slipped out of bed, took a walk along the beach to see what damage had been done. That was kind of a thing we did on the coast. You've probably done that, Bob. After a storm, you go out and see what happened, don't you? As he strolled, he saw that the beach was covered with starfish that had been thrown ashore and helplessly stranded by the great waves. Once the morning sun burned through the clouds, the starfish would dry out and die. Suddenly, the man saw an interesting sight. A young boy who had also noticed the plight of the starfish was picking them up one at a time and flinging them back into the ocean. I remember doing that with sand dollars one time. We walked on a beach, there were sand dollars all over them. And if you turn them sideways like this and huck them, they flatten out and it looks like they'll sail for about a mile. I don't know how far a starfish will sail, but sand dollars will go a long way. So the boy was flinging them back into the ocean one at a time. Why are you doing that? The man asked the lad as he got close enough to be heard. Can't you see that one person will never make a difference? You'll never be able to get all those starfish back into the water. There are just too many. Yes, that's true, the boy sighed as he bent over and picked up another and tossed it into the water. Then as he watched it sink, he looked at the man, smiled and said, but I sure made a difference for that one. Do we believe that? Do we believe we can make a difference for that one? Because God is interested in that one. How many sheep were lost? How many coins were lost? One at a time, folks. 
one at a time. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The lost. C.T. Studd was a British missionary to China, India, and Africa. And he said this, Let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for the Redeemer. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. I love that. Oh, finally, they're gone. I want them to say that about me. Folks, we have to have God's passion for the lost. And we must also share God's pursuit. See, God's attitude is whatever it takes. Again, I point to Jesus. It took something pretty drastic, didn't it? It took the sacrifice of his own son on the cross. In our case, it might require sacrifice or change or moving out of our comfort zone. You know, when I listed some of those folks that maybe we have a little trouble associating with or, you know, feeling like, boy, would I want to minister to them? That might be the kind of... God would say, I want to move you out of your comfort zone and I want you to minister to somebody over here that, ooh, I don't know if I can do that. Again, C.T. Studd said this, Some wish to live within the sound of chapel bell. I want to run an escape shop within a yard of hell. I'm going to pursue him right to the doorstep. I remember, and I might have shared this with you before, the pastor of the Nazarene Church in McMinnville, Oregon. It was a pretty large church. We were in a pastor's meeting one time, and he had all the statistics about all the people in their, their county that attended church, and he subtracted that number from the population of the county. And he said, those are all free for the taking now. They're our mission. Our job is to empty hell. Great mission. Great mission. And listen, it requires ongoing effort. The same kind of effort it took to find the sheep and the coin. Think of what the shepherd had to do to find the lost sheep. Leaving the 99 behind implies that the day was at an end and the sheep were in the fold. You know, they counted them as they jumped. Come on, one, two, three, Susie, Sam, you know. I don't know if they, we used to name our cows. I don't know if shepherds named their sheep, but he knew that one was missing. Now the shepherd has to go out. And he has to retrace the day's steps and search every nook and cranny in fading light or even in the dark to find the sheep that has strayed. That's kind of scary. Just wait till morning. Well, Sheep are on too many other animals' menu to do that. <clears throat> We're on menu too, did you know that? Satan's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. How about the woman? Well, it says she lights a lamp or a candle. Now, can you just picture this? 
So she lights it up and she's walking around the house just searching everywhere to see if she can find that coin. And when the lamp doesn't do the trick, then she sweeps the floor. Maybe, you know, maybe, you know, up in the dustpan, you kind of shake it out. No, it's not there. And when the coin is still not found, she gets down on her hands and knees and searches every crack in that stone floor in an effort to find the coin that was lost. A number of years ago, Sunday Times journalist Matthew Paris, a man who by his own confession is not a Christian, wrote this. The New Testament offers a picture of God who does not sound at all vague. He sent his son to earth. He has distinct plans for each of us personally and can communicate directly with us. We are capable of forming a direct relationship individually with him and are commanded to try. We are told that this can be done only through his son. And we are offered the prospect of eternal life. And afterlife in happy, blissful, or glorious circumstances if we live life in a certain manner. Friends, if I believe that, or even a tenth of that, how could I care which version of the prayer book is used? I would drop my job, sell my house, throw away all my possessions, leave my acquaintances and set out into the world burning with desire to know more and when I had found more, to act upon it and tell all others. Far from being puzzled that the Mormons and Adventists should knock on the door, I am unable to understand how anyone who believed that which is written in the Bible could choose to spend their waking hours in any other endeavor. This is a non-believer. It should convict us. Folks, we have to share in God's pursuit. And that's what we see here. God giving us a picture of how he pursues those who are lost. And the extreme lengths he's, he goes to to find us. <clears throat> and what are we willing to do? Well, in, in both stories, the lost is found. Good news. The lost is found. He picks up the sheep, puts it on his shoulders, and carries it back to the sheepfold where the 99 await. By the way... He did not leave, probably did not leave those 99 alone. You know, the coyotes are standing on the hill up above saying, hey, the shepherd just left. Hey. No, that didn't happen. There were probably under shepherds watching the sheep. This was the guy in charge that went out. And we know that the coin is found. She had 10. She'd lost, she lost a tenth of what she had as resources. And she searched and searched till she found it. And in both cases, when it's found, they call their friends and neighbors and say, Hey, let's have a party because I found what was lost. Think God does that? We must share God's pleasure. Luke 15, verse 10, which we read today. This is in the Common English Bible. 
In the same way I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life. I mean, that was the reaction when the sheep and the coin were found, right? Yes. You know, we've just come through Advent. Advent season. And we celebrated the coming of Jesus to earth. And here's a chance for you to do a little sword drill number here. Remember, I talked to you about that last week. You know, you Okay, get, get ready. Look up Luke chapter 2, verse 11. And here's the question I want you to answer. From Luke chapter 2, verse 11, what was the message the angels shared with the, with the shepherds? Say it loud. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Great. Today in the town of David, here's the good news. A Savior has been born. And after that announcement, what did the angels do? There was, whoo, they they burst out in celebration. Why? Because God had sent a Savior for lost people. Even the angels were excited about that. We should be too. It was God's pleasure to send His Son to save people from their sins. And every time one of those lost is found, there's a celebration in heaven. Here's another scripture. Here's the second sword drill today. Look up 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. <clears throat> and tell me what God was pleased to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Tell me what God was pleased to do. He was, he was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to, to save us. He was pleased to save us. It makes God happy. <clears throat> and when God's happy, heaven's happy. God was pleased. In, in my Bible it says, For since in the wisdom of God... The, the world through its wisdom did not know Him. But God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And aren't we motivated by things that please us? We're motivated by those kinds of things. What we participate in, we, we participate in things that please us, that we enjoy. Are we pleased with what pleases God? And we have to ask ourselves, I think, how, how much was a sheep worth? How, how much was a coin worth? See, lost people, those, that sheep and those, those, that coin, they represent lost people. So if those things represent lost people, 
what were they worth? Everything. They're worth the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, God's only son. In God's economy, everyone is of such value that he wants to find them. You know, we, uh, I've read at times we're thinking about doing away with the penny in our monetary system because what's a penny? Ping. You find them on the ground all the time. People drop a penny, they don't even stop to pick it up. Well, some of us do, I do, but... <clears throat> But that's, isn't it? And that's kind of how we look. It's, you know, uh, they're kind of like a penny. Yeah. They're not worth anything. God doesn't view anybody that way. Bill Heibel said this. We have never locked eyes with someone who did not matter to God. We have never locked eyes with someone who did not matter to God. <clears throat> little history. Y'all know who Louis Pasteur was, right? He was the pioneer of immunology. He lived at a time when thousands of people died each year of rabies. Pasteur had worked for many years on a vaccine. And just as he was about to experiment on himself, a nine-year-old boy, Joseph Meister, was bitten by a rabid dog. The boy's mother begged Pasteur to experiment on her son. Pasteur injected Joseph Meister for 10 days, and the boy lived. Decades later, of all the things Pasteur could have etched on his headstone, he had these words put on. Joseph Meister lived. Folks, our greatest legacy will be those who live eternally because of our efforts, because the lost matter to us just as they do to God. Amen? Amen. Pray with me, would you? Father, I think sometimes we get pretty comfortable because we've got our ticket punched. We're on on our way to heaven. And we get kind of lackadaisical and maybe a little calloused. And we forget that there are people all around us, people we rub shoulders with, neighbors across the fence, friends, family. Co-workers, people at the store where we shop, people on the trail where we hike, people at the lake where we go fishing, who are lost. Oh, they know their way home, but spiritually they're lost. And they need Jesus. And Father, we really need to have the heart for lost people that you have. We need to see them through your eyes. Because if we don't, if we don't have the passion for them, if we're not willing to pursue them, 
If we, if we don't have the same pleasure in seeing people come to Jesus that you do, it's going to be difficult for us to fulfill the Great Commission. And God, I pray today that you would motivate us. We would be able to say, you know what, I'm not willing that any should perish. <laughs> nobody in my sphere of influence, nobody I know, I don't want to see anybody go to hell for eternity. I don't. And so we'll use whatever means necessary. If it requires sacrifice, if it requires change, if it requires being uncomfortable on our part, we'll be willing to do those things because we share the heart for the loss that you have, Lord God. To remember that our, our underlying mission as a, as a church is to share the good news of the gospel with people who don't know Jesus and to help the lost be found. And to provide people who are hopeless with hope and purposeless with purpose and meaningless with meaning. And to help them understand that this isn't all there is. So, Lord God, I pray that you would start a new fire in our hearts and lives. It's got to happen. It's got to happen. We need to be start. We need to look around in our sanctuary and start saying, "Who is that?" We know everybody. Who's that? And who's that? And who's that? And who's that? And that's happening because we've touched someone's life. And your Holy Spirit has drawn them to this place because they're seeking Jesus. They may not know that. That may not be what it says in their heads. I'm seeking Jesus, but your Holy Spirit's drawing them. And it's because we made contact with their life. We touched them in some way. We shared Jesus Christ with them. They've seen something in our lives that they want. And so we're able to look around and say, Hey, who's that? And Father, I pray that those will be words on our lips, but they won't, we won't keep on saying that because we'll unfold them and we'll love them and we'll introduce ourselves to them and We'll do our best to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in their lives. And I want us just to take a moment in this quiet time this morning. One, I don't know who God might have laid on your heart. Maybe you've got a whole list of people. But I want us to take a moment in the quietness of the, as we end this service today just to bring those names and faces before God. Because He is faithful to work in their lives. And then remember last week when I talked about the Great Commission, we need to also ask God, help me to do my part to reach them. Remember that song, Lord lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And may I ever do my part. To win that soul for thee. That's the second part of our prayer. We need to pray for them, but we need to pray for us too. 
of God. By the power of your spirit at work in us, build a motivating fire in our hearts. I pray that like that little quote from C.T. Studd that I read this morning, that we're such faithful disciples of Jesus Christ and such faithful missionaries, such faithful evangelists, such faithful bearers of the good news, that on the day we go to heaven, Satan will celebrate because... Somebody who's caused him major problems has gone to be with Jesus. <clears throat> Help us to be that kind of people. Help us to be that kind of church. And Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.